Okay, we've got this one going, thanks. Starting today, kicking off a series, um, Alive in Christ. And as Christ is the focus for this year, I want us to think about what it means to be alive in Christ. And uh, what better place to go to discover that than to read through the book of Ephesians that Paul has written. And if, you know, if you've read Ephesians lately, you'll know that one of Paul's favourite sayings is, in Christ, in Christ Jesus. So we're going to be looking at, for the next term and maybe a little bit longer, being alive in Christ or living in Christ. And how are we going with this one? Working? Oh, nope, okay. So if you've got your Bibles handy, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 6 is where we'll be looking at this morning. And uh, once I get the nod, we'll have the PowerPoint up there. Ah, okay. It's in the, in the briefcase. So who knows a little bit about Ephesians? Anybody know a little bit about the background of Ephesians? Who wrote it? Paul wrote it. That's, that's not contested. Uh, it's fairly solid evidence that Paul wrote Ephesians. Here's stretching the memory, and you might have this in the pages of your Bible if you're looking up Ephesians. Do you know when it was written? Any idea? Around 60 to 62 AD. So around 60 to 62 AD. And um, do you know where it was written? It was written from prison, that's right. There's a few letters that Paul wrote from prison. There was... Uh, Philippians, Colossians and Ephesians. He wrote those while he's in prison. And he wrote them to encourage the Christians in those congregations and those towns. So what did he have to say to the people of Ephesus, the Christians of Ephesus? Ephesus was an interesting city. Here we go. Let's see how we go. And um, the background to Ephesus was that Paul actually gave um, his letter to the Ephesians to Priscilla and Aquila. And this couple were the first couple that brought the gospel to the town of Ephesus and shared with people there for the first time the good news of Jesus. So, so he probably gave his letter to them and they went and read it to the city. But some of the uh, Bible scholars have said that, that in some of the early manuscripts of, of Ephesians, the uh, first verse which, which says uh, Paul is writing to the Ephesians, the word, the, the town Ephesus is not mentioned. And so they think that Possibly the letter was written as a circular letter to lots of churches, but when, uh, when it was presented to the Ephesians, it was read particularly to them. E Ephesus was an interesting city. It's on the um, eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea and at the mouth of a river called the Caister River. And it was a metropolis of the day. It was a centre of, um, of uh, produce and merchandise and and, and all the rest that goes on in one of those big towns. But the thing it was mainly known for was its temple of Artemis. And Artemis was a god that was worshipped, uh, or another name for her was Diana. And the temple that was created for her was one of the, the wonders of the world at that time. So it was quite a, an astounding temple. So Paul was writing to the people in Ephesus that were familiar with the worship of other gods to remind them of worshipping the one true God. And who they were when they were alive in Christ. Excellent. Thank you, folks. So there we are. You can see Ephesus on the eastern end uh, of, uh, or the western end of Turkey, but the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. Paul actually ended up going to Ephesus and, and stayed there for three years and preached and taught in the church and encouraged the church there. And after he left, uh, Timothy, 
was appointed as, as the pastor to lead that congregation. Timothy didn't have such a good time. There's a couple of people in the congregation that were teaching some, some myths and fables. It's mentioned in, in Timothy's uh, letter to Timothy. But, but at the same time, God was doing some great things in the church at Ephesus. And if there's, if there's an encouraging book to read, it's to read the book of, Ephesus, of Ephesians. So I would encourage you over this term and into next term, to take some time slowly to read through the book of Ephesians and see what God says to your heart about his word for you and for our church today. I want you to put your thinking caps on this morning. And in fact, uh, while we're in the first three chapters of, of Ephesians, you'll need your thinking caps on every day, every time we look at that, because the first half of Ephesians is quite theological. It's, uh, it's quite doctrinal. So Paul's trying to remind the Ephesians of what they know to be true. Do we need that? Do we need that reminder? You know what's true. Why don't you live that way? Uh, some people have come to me for counselling. And uh, uh, I'm not going to pick on anybody or tell any stories. But um, one of the things I'll say to people who are really uh, anxious or worried or concerned about something is I'll say to them, what do you know to be true? What's true for you as a follower of Jesus? And they can, they can easily rattle off the truths that they know. God loves me. He sent his son to die for me. I believed in Jesus. I'm saved from my sin. I have hope for eternity. I said, they're all the things that are true, aren't they? Yes. How does that work with the situation that you're facing? The reality is if we're not reminded of the things that we know to be true, the things around about us can overtake us. And that's what Paul was trying to do in this letter. He was trying to remind people of what was true, absolutely concretely true, without question, so that then, as followers of Jesus, they could live it out. And that's what the last three chapters of Ephesians are about. But it's all about being alive in Christ and what that means to us and how we live it out. Ephesians is a letter that talks about God's uh, magnificent blessing of his people. And we're going to hear some of that in the weeks to come as well. So would you follow me as I read through? Oh, I've gone through all that. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. This is what Paul writes. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Verse 6, To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. I could spend six weeks on that passage alone. There's so many good things there. Uh, but uh, today I just want to focus on a, a three main things out of that passage. I don't know if you watched the news this week, but you might have seen this young lady. Anybody watch the news? 13-year-old, won the Hospital Foundation raffle and got a brand new car. How would that be for a 13-year-old? I think somewhere in the conversation I heard her say, I can't believe it. And Dad certainly said, oh, we buy tickets, never thinking that we'll win. We'll just buy the tickets to support the Hospital Foundation. She was amazed. 
that at 13, you bought a ticket that you actually won the car. I wonder how many of us might say those same words if, if, if we're surprised by something that we've received. If you uh, got news that you inherited a fortune, your first words might be, I can't believe it. And I wonder why that's such a common response to people in our society, certainly in Western society. I think it's because we've been conditioned to expect the ordinary, to expect the routine, just the same old, same old. Life is filled with a routine that we live by. You know, we get up in the morning, we clean our teeth, have our breakfast, blah, blah, blah. So anything unusual or unexpected is a surprise. I can't believe it. Sadly, that aspect to material wealth or this physical world sometimes, certainly in our Western world, is translated into our spiritual life as well. Many of us have trouble believing God's extravagance, God's goodness toward us. Would you agree? You know, we read his promises. But do we believe it? We hear of the blessings that God has given to us, but do we live in such a way that we actually believe it rather than saying, I can't believe it. We find it hard to believe that God would lavish extravagant blessings on us. Why is that? I think it's because for a long time in churches, and I've got to be careful that I've probably said this or preached it in the past, we've heard that we're not good enough or not holy enough or we're not sincere enough to get the really good things from God. Have you ever heard that? You know, um, we're not holy enough, we're not sincere enough, we're not righteous enough. How can God bless us? If we're sinners, the reality is that that moment that we come to faith in Jesus, we confess our sin, we ask God to forgive us of our sin, he cleanses us, he makes us right in his sight, that moment, God's word says that we experience the lavish blessings of God. But we don't hear about it too often. So my hope in, in working through Ephesians uh, looking at being alive in Christ, is that we will understand some of the lavish blessings that God has put on us. I think part of the reason is, this is my theory, that in our Western world, which we live in, we rely on our scientific, our academic uh, knowledge more than our spiritual knowledge. If we lived in another country, uh, perhaps the majority of this world, where there's a, uh, an enmeshing, a greater connection between the spiritual and the physical, then we would probably understand more clearly what Paul was writing. But for us, it's a big stretch, it's a big step to make sure that the spiritual is enmeshed with the physical. Does that make sense? I hope you've got your thinking caps on, because I certainly had to have mine on when I was trying to explain this. So, so what... Uh, I believe the challenge for us as we read through Ephesians is what's it mean to be blessed in the heavenlies? We need to understand what, what God is saying to us through Paul's writing. When we grab it, when we grab hold of it, we say, yes, that's what I believe. I believe it will change our lives, the way we do life every day because we understand God's extravagant blessings towards us, his people. 
One of the truths that we will find in the book of Ephesians is that our inheritance in Christ is given to us freely. We didn't have to earn anything that's promised to us from God. We didn't have to uh, climb the highest mountain, swim the widest sea, pluck the pale feather out of the eagle. Didn't have to do any of that. God's, the inheritance that God has given to us is given freely by God. We will hear about that as we go. I have a prayer. My prayer is that as we go through Ephesians, that um, it will be the same as Paul's prayer in these verses. This is what it says. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Anybody want to have that answer to prayer in their lives? Me? I do. Pray that for me, please. Paul says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. I want to know that hope. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength. And he goes on to say the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's my prayer for us. As we work through Ephesians together, I know one of the Bible study groups is going to be doing Ephesians as well. And how we can know these things in our lives, that incomparably great power for us who believe. Would you right now say to God, Lord, I'm ready to hear. I'm ready to hear what you have to say to me through Ephesians. Because I want to live in a way that recognises your power in my life let's be still for a moment if that's your prayer you just pray that quietly to god this morning so in coming to this passage in ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 to 6 i want to ask you some important questions and what what would your answer be you don't have to tell me but what would your answer be to these questions first one Do you really know who you are in Christ? Do you really know what it's like to be alive in Christ? Do you see yourself as a follower of Jesus? Do you see yourself as powerful? A lot of us don't see ourselves that way. But this is what the Bible tells us. Or do you see yourself as, what's the opposite to powerful? Weak? Impotent? And for some people that's ingrained in us because of our backgrounds and our environment. Do you understand the true extent of what it means to have the Son of God living inside you? I hope we can all say, yes, I do. Do you hold your head up high because of your relationship with Jesus? Or are you sometimes embarrassed? Spiritually, do you see yourself in rags or in riches? And I hope that we'll answer some of those questions as we go through Uh, this series of being alive in Christ. So in the first six verses of uh, Ephesians 1, we're going to look at three characteristics of those who are in Christ. And you know me, I like alliteration, so there are three S's. So if you're taking notes, then you can tick off the S's as we go. In Christ, we are significant. We are, what's another word for significant? Valued, important, honoured, So in Christ, we are significant. And everybody wants to be significant. Everybody's striving for significance in life. 
And generally, most people will place great value on possessions, on power, and on positions to find their significance. Would that be right in the people that you associate with? They're after possessions, you know, the next big house, or the next new car, or the next whatever. They're after power. I have authority, control over people. They're after positions, you know, status, ego. When you ask people to tell them about yourselves, uh, tell them, tell you about themselves, what do they normally say? When, when I'm meeting somebody for the first time, I'll say to them, tell me, tell me a little about yourself. The th- often the guys will go, well, my job is, or I used to be, you know, or, um, or uh, uh, this is our place, or, um, you know, they don't tell me what's in their bank account, but uh, I'm sure they would if they were bold enough. But they tell you what they've been living for. They've been living to work towards retirement, or they've been living to, to get the better job. Often they'll tell you where they work. Sometimes they'll tell you about their family, their children, how proud they are of their children, because that's a way of being significant. People strive after acceptance. They strive after a sense of significance. And I think that's right for us too. We do, but we need to find our significance in Christ. And certainly uh, the writer to, of the Ecclesiastes, we know him as Solomon, he had this struggle. I don't know if you've read Ecclesiastes much. It's a bit of a downer book, you know, you get burdened by Ecclesiastes, but at the same time, there's some insightful truth into what people are striving after in this world. And certainly um, uh, Solomon said these things. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verses 4 to 11, he says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. Some significant things he did. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of men. So he felt as though he was significant. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for all my labor. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like some of the people I talk with, that's what they're striving after. I don't know about the harems as much these days, but, but um, uh, certainly they're striving after the projects and the, and the glory of finishing something or achieving something or finishing well. Solomon tested the significance of being prosperous and wealthy. He had it all. He, had t- he tested accomplishing something big. He did that. He tested doing exciting things. But look at his conclusion in verse 11. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Did he really find significance? No. No, he didn't. He thought he would and he he chased after it, but he didn't. The conclusion for Solomon of all that he did is is found in chapter 12 and verse 13. I haven't got it up on the screen. This is what it says. His conclusion about finding significance was this. Fear God 
and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. The wisest man in the world found significance not in all the fringe benefits of life but in the fear of God, the worship of God. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are significant because we're saints. We are significant because we're saints. What's he say? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. He addresses his listeners or his readers as saints. And this is, this is a good biblical term that applies to all believers in Jesus. Believe it or not, uh, I could call you Saint Fred. You can call me Bishop? No. no. Okay. Um, a lot of the manuscripts that, that Paul writes refers to the believers as saints. And we've got this thing in our um, thinking today that the saints are different. But Paul wrote these letters to all the churches so that he might encourage the saints, the followers of Jesus. And to be a saint means to be holy because that's where the word comes from. Holy or set apart for God's purposes. So as followers of Jesus, we are saints, holy and set apart for God's services. Someone has said, don't be, mistake, don't be misled or mistaken by the idea that statehood is something that can be conferred on someone by an ecclesiastical body. But if you want to be a saint, in that situation, you have to be dead first. I don't want to go there. Uh, according to God's word, all believers are saints. We're not holy because of our own good works or righteousness. We're holy because of what Christ has done for us, and what Christ has done in us. In fact, Isaiah knew that in the Old Testament. He said, he said um, all of us, have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So no matter what we might do that is considered good compared to what Christ has done for us. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, I don't know about you, but some days I don't feel very righteous. Now, you might tell a white lie. Hold on a minute. All my lies are white lies. Okay, you might tell a, a lie, you might, you might tell a mistruth, or you might mislead somebody by not telling them the whole truth. I don't know about you, but it doesn't make me feel very righteous. The good news is that even when we get to that place where we're feeling like that, we are forgiven when we confess our sins and repent. Christ has died for all that. So if we were relying on our own strength to be like filthy rags, but we now have the righteousness of God in Christ is what Paul tells us. What an amazing statement. I don't know about you, but that lifts me from the physical to the spiritual when I'm told that my righteousness is because of who Christ is and what he's done. When Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty for my sin, for our sin. It was on the cross he put an end to death itself because we now live for eternity. We are significant in Christ. In Christ, we are significant. I wonder about you. Do you recognise that you are significant in Christ? You don't have to prove yourself to anybody. Jesus accepts you as you are. When God looks at you, he doesn't see all the mistakes and all the failings. He sees the righteousness of Christ. We've got to get our heads around that, haven't we? 
not that we should consider ourselves elite or better than anybody else, but we should consider ourselves humble, knowing that this is what Christ has achieved for us. One scholar wrote that the heart of Paul's religion, when he is talking about Paul's writings, in all his writings, was that incredible enmeshing, that incredible spiritual, physical, or spiritual union with Christ, that we are in Christ. I think there's 164 times he uses that expression or a similar expression. And, and I believe as 21st century believers in Jesus, we need to come to grips with what is this being in Christ, knowing the truth of that. Paul writes a similar thing in Colossians. He says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. He goes on and says, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's another one of those thinking cap times for me. What does it mean to set our minds on, on heavenly things, not on earthly things? What does it mean that we are hidden with Christ in God? What does it mean that we are now seated in heavenly places with Christ? Anybody got the answer to those questions? There's certainly things that I've been uh, searching into to see if we can understand how that meshes with our day-to-day living, that we are spiritual people connected with the uh, creator of the universe living out our lives in this world. There's an element here of being significant because we're saints, we're holy ones, being significant because we are with Christ spiritually in heavenly, heavenly places. And most people would uh, gain their significance, as I mentioned earlier, from those possessions, that power or that position. But our significance comes out of our intimacy with God. Our significance comes out of our intimacy with God. Someone wrote this, I'm not sure how clear it is. Some people said that some people can't get saved because they won't accept their sinnership and that some Christians can't walk in victory because they won't accept their sainthood. I think sometimes when we accept the fact that we are saints, certainly sinners forgiven by Christ, but that we're connected spiritually with the living God, then we can walk in victory over the things that would otherwise drag us captive. Ephesians says to us that we are significant because of our status before God as a result of what Jesus has done. So we're significant. Second thing, and there's only two to go and these are quicker. In Christ we are sufficient. Verse 3 says that God has given us sufficiency in Christ. What does it say? Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We are sufficient because we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's not that he will bless us. He has blessed us. It's a done deal. But do we really live that way? What's he blessed us with? He's given us a spiritual blessing. He's given us every spiritual blessing, Paul writes. Got to think about that got to ponder on that. What does that mean? It's a promise. It's more than a promise. It's a reality today. How do we live that out? 
I believe that these blessings come to us in, in two ways, these spiritual blessings. The first one is they come to us through the Holy Spirit living in us, the promised Holy Spirit. So we are connected to God because God's Spirit's in us. And the second thing is that they're spiritual, they're not physical. But there is this intertwining that we have to live it out. So these blessings are amazing. This sufficiency is amazing. Paul gives us some examples. It's not an exhaustive list in the next few verses, but we're going to touch on them over the next couple of weeks so that we can understand without a doubt that we can experience those spiritual blessings more than what we ever imagined. That's my hope. One of the benefits that Paul writes about in this particular passage, verses 1 to 6, is, the bene- is that of predestination, being chosen by God. That's an enormous thing to preach about, and I'm not going to do it today, I'm going to do it next week. So if you want to find out what Pastor John believes about predestination and election, come next week. But certainly I believe God has uh, chosen us for his purposes. And if we don't know this truth, these truths about these spiritual blessings, then how will we ever walk in them? How can we not say, I can't believe it? We can only say that by knowing the truth. So in Christ we have sufficiency because we have every every spiritual blessing. So we need to rely on our resources in Christ. One way of saying it is this, in Christ we are rich. We are rich spiritually. It's as if somebody put an anonymous deposit into your bank account and you didn't know about it. But then one day you went to look at your uh, bank balance and thought, where did that money come from? I can't believe it, you might say. Do you know it's of no value to anybody unless you write a check or you spend it? If you want to know how to spend it, come and talk to me. I love spending other people's money. But it's like that with our spiritual blessings, if you like, in the bank of heaven. How do we live them out? How do we utilise those things that God has given to us? Sometimes we fail to acknowledge the one who has blessed us. Sometimes we fail to acknowledge the one who has blessed us. And I wonder if this story might help you to understand that. Chuck Swindle is a favourite author of mine. I love reading his books. I love listening to his sermons. I get some great illustrations from him and this is one of those. Sometimes we fail to give to God the thanks that he deserves. And Chuck Swindle told this story about a man he visited in a relatively gloomy uh, veteran's hospital in the States. This is what he says. The day I I I arrived to visit, I saw a touching scene. This man had a young son and during his confinement in the hospital, he made a little wooden truck for his boy. But since the boy wasn't allowed to go up and visit the ward where his father was because of all those um, restrictions, an orderly had brought the gift down to the child who was waiting in front of the hospital. So his dad was up on the fifth floor. He could see the orderly give the gift to his child who was there with, with this fellow's wife. The little boy opened the package and his eyes got wide when he saw this wonderful little truck. He hugged it to his chest. He, it was great. Meanwhile, Dad was upstairs, walking backwards and forwards, waving, trying to get his son's attention. The little boy put the truck down and reached up and hugged the orderly and thanked him for the truck. 
All the while, the frustrated father was going through these dramatic gestures, trying to say, it's me, son. I made the truck for you. I gave it to you. Look up here. You could almost read the lips of the dad. And finally, the mother and the orderly turned the boy's attention up to that fifth floor window. It was then that the boy cried out, Daddy, oh, thank you. I miss you so much, Daddy. Come home. Thank you for my truck. One of God's up there waving. Hey, guys, I blessed you. Look up at me. And yet we're so focused on the blessing that we forget the one who gave it to us. And my hope in, in, in working through Ephesians is that, that we will look to the one who has blessed us. We'll look to the one who makes us significant. And we'll look to the one who makes us secure. Because in Christ we are secure. And the last couple of parts of those verses remind us that, that he chose us before to be adopted as sons before the creation of the world. God had a plan for our lives. He chose us in Christ. Jeremiah tells us that he knew us before we were formed in our mother's womb. God has a plan. He chose us to be followers of Jesus today, even before Adam and Eve took their first steps on this planet. I don't understand that. I'm not sure we ever will understand that. It's a matter of faith. But I believe there's, there's some elements to that that we can grasp hold of and say, yes, I want to be totally in this plan that God has for me. I don't want anything to distract me from that. We are secure because we've been adopted to be the sons and daughters of the living God. And that Greek word for predestined there is the word that says marked out beforehand. God had a plan. It wasn't random. It was a plan that said, people who believe in Jesus will become my sons and daughters. The word adoption there is an interesting word. It's a, it's a Roman word, not a Jewish word. And it says that we are adopted to that position of sonship, just like a real son. So in God's eyes, in God's eyes we are his children. We can be secure in that. We can be secure in the fact that we will receive God's blessings and his grace. God's blessings and his grace. Lastly, and one ahead. Some people try to, to um, explain what grace is, uh, a definition for grace. And I think the simplest one is, is unmerited favour, unmerited love and favour. Someone has used the word grace as an acrostic. Does anybody know what that acrostic was? God's riches at Christ's expense. Yeah, I, I can live with that. We experience God's rich, riches through the expense of what Christ did for us on the cross not a bad definition what stood out in Paul's mind is that God treated him like this even though for a lot of Paul's life he was against what Christ was doing he had no way of deserving that grace I think many of us would feel that same way too this picture here is a picture of a, a uh, an app that I, Apple developed back in 2009 anybody aware of it pocket God yeah okay Right. And it's a game that you can play on your iPhones. Not that I've played it, I've got to reassure you of that. But I was reading about it. 
and uh, you can be a God in this game. And as a God, you can uh, be a caring God or a vengeful God. You can be a, a God who rules and you rule on this remote island. You're an all-powerful God. You rule over the primitive islanders. You bring a new life and then you can take it away just as quickly. Interesting, the results of this game. The reviews of it said that uh, the, some of the options on this game was throwing people into volcanoes, using islanders as shark bait, doesn't really attract me as a, um, as a game. Uh, bowling islanders over with a large rock sounds like Indiana Jones. It's felt, the reviewers felt that very few people wanted to become a benevolent, caring God. They wanted to become a vengeful God. I wonder if it's because those people that played the game didn't know of the grace of God, the undeserved favour of God. Paul's desire in writing Ephesians was to point out the spiritual blessings that we have in knowing God. There was a song, uh, I'm going back to last century now because I lived then. There was a song put, written by Andre Crouch called My Tribute. You may know it. And these are some of the words. All that I am and ever hope to be, I owe it all to thee. To God be the glory for the things he has done. With his blood he has saved me. With his power he has raised me. To God be the glory for the things he has done. Do you know that song? We need to be singing that, not that particular song, but we need to have that attitude every day. To God be the glory. And if we do, then we can rest in our relationship with him. We can rest in our relationship with Christ because we are secure, because we are loved, because we have that grace of God shown to us because we are confident that we are in Jesus. We can rest in that. God's will was to choose us, to adopt us as his sons and daughters. He did this out of his free will. I wonder, have you accepted that? Do you know that for sure? That nothing you can do will make God love you anymore. It's solely accepting what he's done for you. A powerful passage, these first six verses. In Christ, we are significant. In Christ, we are sufficient. In Christ, we are secure. And I hope that's your story. I hope by putting on the uh, thinking caps, you've started to think about how real is this for me today? We can say we are righteous. We can say we are rich. We can say we are received by God. We are saints. We have to realise our righteousness before God. Like I said before, not in an, in an elite way, but in a way which is humbly recognising what God's done for us. One of the, word, one of the books in Proverbs says this. Ah, sorry, that's not it. One of the uh, verses in Proverbs says, as a person thinks within himself, so he is. If we know that we are spirit, blessed spiritually, then we will live out our lives accordingly. If you believe what the devil says about you, you will fail in life and perhaps you won't even try. If you live life based on what others say about you, you may or may not be any better off. It depends on whom you talk to. But if you live based on what God says, who you, on who God says you are, then you can hold your head up high. You're somebody because somebody lives in you. In Christ you have 
or you will never know. There's a song, I shared it with the um, musicians this morning and that none of them were old enough to remember it, except for Julie. <laughs> it's a song that, that's this word here. I've got something the world can't give and the world can't take it away. Anybody know that one? Oh, good. If I try and start it on the right note, do you think you can sing with me? It's another acapella song. We did this a couple of weeks ago. It worked really well. Thank you. It goes something like this. I've got something that the world can't give and the world can't take it away. I've got something that the world can't give and it keeps me night and day. I've got something worth talking about. It makes me sing and it makes me shout. Yeah! I've got something that the world can't give and the world can't take it away. Anybody know it? You know it now. That was the first song I learned after I gave my life to Jesus. And uh, it's something that stuck with me for years because there's a second verse. I think it's a made-up verse. It goes something like this. Jesus is the one that the world can't give and the world can't take him away. Jesus is the one that the world can't give and he keeps me night and day. Jesus is the one we're talking about. He makes me sing and he makes me shout. Yes, Jesus is the one that the world can't give and the world can't take him away. Give yourselves a clap. That's very good, very good. No, no Italian versions, thank you. No, no, no. But the reality is, that the world can't give him and the world can't take him away. We know Jesus because of God's grace shown to us. We are significant in God's eyes. We are sufficient in God's eyes. And I wonder if we truly believe that. My encouragement to you and my challenge is over the coming weeks that we'll grasp hold of that and we might even learn that song off by heart. And uh, it might stick in your head. I know, I know Kathy said it's been going in her, her head all morning since I first mentioned it. But it's true. The world can't take him away. And I, that's my prayer for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way you led Paul to write to the believers in Ephesus and in the other churches around about there. Thank you that we have access to those writings through your word. Thank you that your spirit implants them into our heads and hearts. And we pray that this week there'll be some reinforcement of, of the, uh, the knowledge that we are able to access your extravagant blessings in our lives. That we are righteous in Christ. And Father, help, us that, help that to affect the way we live our, our lives this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.